So let's look at verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 1 of Hosea. Hosea 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, or Hoshea in the Hebrew, the son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. The book of Hosea, or Hosea, is the first of the series of prophetic books in the scriptures known as the Minor Prophets. Distinguished from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which are known as the major prophets. Now, these designations came about in the church of the latter part of the fourth century when the Latin church employed the term minor prophets because of their brevity of their books, not because of their unimportance. They're very important, they're just shorter than the major prophets. So it's just the length of, of the letters or the, the, the prophecies of these, uh, th that were given to these prophets that matters with the designations of major or minor. But way before that, way before that, there was their importance in the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. Now the books of the minor prophets were grouped together as one book called the Twelve. And that book was added to the first three major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, to form what is called the latter prophets, or the Nevi'im. Now the former prophets, or the early prophets, were also four in number. Those in the, again, the Hebrew scriptures, in what is called the Hebrew Old Testament, or the Old Testament, which we call the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, but the former, or the early prophets, were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And Samuel would be the combination of both First Sam, uh, Samuel and Second Samuel, First Kings and Second Kings. But they were brought together and became four books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The book of Daniel, which of course we know is a very prophetic book, it falls under the section called the writings, which include the uh, the poetic books and the historical books. But to get a better understanding of the original order of the books of the Hebrew Scriptures and its importance, I want you to consider the three different groups that they're paired in. The first one being the Torah. Torah is the teaching or the law. And in the Torah, you find the first five books of the Bible, just as they are in the, uh, in the uh, Christian Bible, if we can call it that. It is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second book of the Hebrew Scriptures is called the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im, or the Prophets, and is broken into two sections. The first section is the Nevi'im Rishonim, which is the earlier, the former prophets, those being, as I said, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, both first and second, and Kings, the first and second. And then there is the Nevi'im 
Akaronim, which is the later or the latter prophets. Now these include the 12, uh, along with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. So the 12 being Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Naum, or Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, Zechariah, and Malachi. So that's the second portion of the, uh, the Tanakh, or the Hebrew scriptures. The third is the Ketuvim, or the writings. So the writings have the Psalms, the Proverbs, and Job. They have what is called the five Megilot, which is the scrolls. The five scrolls being Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. Added to that is the book of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. When you consider what is written in these particular writings, you find the poetic books along with the historical books. So there is the history of the Jewish people. And of course, there is, if you'll notice, I mentioned Lamentations. Normally in, the, in, in our Old Testament, New Testament, you find Jeremiah and Lamentations together before Ezekiel. That's how we studied them ourselves. Nonetheless, in the Hebrew scriptures, Lamentations is found within the writings. All of that just information for you to have and if it helps you, fine. If not, that's okay too. But beginning with the facts about the author of this prophecy, we need to know that his name, Hoshea, simply means the Lord saves. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Hoshea, the Lord saves. Why? Well, because it is closely associated with the names Yehoshua or Joshua and Yeshua, which is the name of Jesus. And those names, of course, mean the Lord is salvation. There is really no distinction. Uh, in, in a greater sense, there's no great distinction between Yehoshua, Hoshea, and Yeshua. It's the same name, primarily. So that's what we know about the name, the Lord is salvation, or the Lord saves. But there's not much personal information given to us about the prophet Hosea, uh, neither his tribe nor his place of birth. But his identity is connected Interestingly enough, to his father's name, Oberei, which means the well of Jehovah, the well of Jehovah. Be'er, sometimes, you know, it looks like beer, I know, but uh, in the scriptures, Be'er, B-E-E-R, is the word for uh, well. You add that one, little con uh, that one little vowel and it becomes the well of something. In this case, it's a longer name, but it, uh, in the English, it, it just means the well of God, the well of Jehovah, or the well of Yahweh. <clears throat> Names in scripture do have meanings. And perhaps, while we're here in that particular verse, the two names together, Hoshea and Be'eri, may remind us of some words of Jesus Words that he gave to a woman at the well in John chapter 4. When he offered her living water from Jehovah's well, from God's well, which would result 
in her salvation. For example, in John 4, verses 13 and 14, the passage I'm referring to, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Speaking of the well by which she was pulling forth water for Jesus. But he goes on and he says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. A well and salvation. Very important pictures, I think, at the beginning of this particular book of Hosea. One thing that we should always keep in mind is that the words of a prophet are not his alone. The words of a prophet are not his alone. And in this case, we're talking about Hosea. The words he would speak are of the Lord given through him. Every right prophet, every good prophet, every prophet chosen by God that remained fearful and faithful to the Lord spoke only the words that God would give them. And so it goes without saying that the Lord loved his people, both Judah and Israel, and used many prophets to speak to both of those nations. Now we're dealing with a time where the nation of Israel was actually split in two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah contained the... uh, the two uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdoms were the the other ten. When I say the other ten, we're talking about the tribe of Joseph was actually split between Manasseh and Ephraim because of their being the sons of Joseph. The Levites were spread actually throughout all of the tribes. That had to have been a difficult time for them because the real place of worship was supposed to be Jerusalem or Jerusalem, and yet they had gone and started a new uh, nation with a new place to worship in Samaria, and the God that they worshiped was a golden calf. And that they did up in the area of Dan, up in the north. So. I mentioned the prophets because God had had not stopped sending them prophets to give them the word of God. And uh, so the ones that spoke the words of God were those prophets that listened to God. And in spite of what the people said, in spite of what the people did, they had to speak the true words of God. Time and time again, we see how many false prophets would arise during every period of time, whether it was a united kingdom or a divided kingdom. But only God's prophets should have been listened to. So when we come to this issue of Judah and Israel being divided and now very close to both of them being chastised and taken into captivity 
for their sins of disobedience and their sins of rebellion. Nonetheless, the prophets were sent by God because he loved them. He loved his people and he sent them the truth. So it makes perfect sense that the Lord wanted Judah as well as Israel to know of his love and devotion to them as expressed in the messages of Hosea. I say this because there have been questions as to the authorship and, the, and apparently different writing styles of Hosea as, as some scholars have seen. Because these scholars connect, uh, contend that it was later editors who took Hosea's original messages, which were meant for Israel, by the way. Hosea, remember, Hosea was a, a prophet to the nations in the, in the northern kingdom, primarily. So there are those scholars that say, yeah, but these other editors took Hosea's original messages, which were meant for Israel, and redirected them toward Judah, and that Hosea's sermon messages intended for Israel were redirected, or I should say to Judah, were redirected to Israel. That should be Judah. It's wonderful when you can make certain corrections that you need to. Well, there is no substantial evidence of what I'm saying, that there were editors that took the word and, and then just said it was just Hosea, but it was actually editors that did it. There's no evidence for this. Besides, this would be completely unnecessary. Uh, besides, it, it just lacks that firm evidence. It, it, it's much more reasonable to recognize that Hosea knew salvation would come through Judah. The Messiah was to come through the family line of David. All the prophets knew that, whether they were in the north or in the south. They knew that salvation was going to come through the Messiah, or the Messiah was going to come and bring salvation through the line of David, which is in the tribe of Judah. And although Hosea preached in Israel and condemned her people for their unfaithfulness and sin, he knew that Judah was equally guilty of the same unfaithfulness. Knowing this, he warned Judah, along with Israel, of the consequences of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now we know from verse 1 that Hosea ministered during the days of four kings of Judah. The word of the Lord came unto, that came unto Hosea, the son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of of Judah and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So Uzziah, Jotham, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, they were kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeroboam, which was Jeroboam II, was the king in Israel in the northern kingdom. But some scholars raise a question as to why Hosea, a citizen of the northern kingdom of Israel, dates his ministry by naming the four kings of Judah and only one king of Israel. And the most reasonable answer is that Hosea considered the kings of Judah to be the only legitimate heirs to the throne of King David. Because the kings of the northern kingdom of, of, of uh, Israel, in fact, usurped their authority usurped the authority of, of, of the kings of, Is, of uh, the, the full nation of Israel, that is, of all the tribes of Israel. 
and began their own nation because they wanted to worship their own way. So Hosea makes it very clear by the statement that, that is written in, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes of the days of those four kings, and just, by the way, mentions Jeroboam in the north. It doesn't mean that his ministry is going to be more toward the south and the north. What it means is these are the legitimate kings. And, the, and some of these kings were good kings. These were good kings. By the way, the kings of the northern kingdom, if you do a study of all the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, there wasn't one good king. Not one. And there couldn't be because they were all in disobedience to where God wanted to be worshipped and how God wanted to be worshipped. So... <laughs> You became a king in Israel, the northern kingdom, and you were already in trouble. So it was David's descendants that God had promised would rule his people forever. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. This was a prophecy by God through the prophet Nathan to David. And it says, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Now here, Israel is all of Israel all the tribes, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish thy throne, or the throne of his kingdom forever." So the throne of God's kingdom that would come through David eventually to the Messiah of Israel is the only line that is the royal line. The only line. So everything in the north, once the kingdom was split, and of course we know that the kingdom was split as, as, as consequences to the sins of David and, and, and Solomon, I mean Solomon. And, and then there came, uh, you know, that split uh, in the kingdom. Nonetheless, God had not changed his covenant as, and his promise as to where the line would continually run and that was, would be through the line of David. That Hosea mentions both Israel's and Judah's kings gives us further proof that he was recording his prophecies for both nations. And so these critical messages from the Lord were ultimately intended for both Israel and Judah. And that brings us now to the date uh, that these prophecies were given and the time frame in which they were recorded. Now the best consideration for the approximate dates of Hosea's ministry to Israel would be between 760 BC and 723, but it could actually be stretched even down to 710 BC, well within the range of the kings that were mentioned. So if you look at the kings that were mentioned in verse 1, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, they would all fit between 760 and 723. 
And then, of course, Jeroboam, all the way, uh, well, to the same time frame, but we're talking about Hosea's full ministry probably being about 50 years. So then you can extend it to about 710. Obviously, Hosea was living during the days of the divided kingdom, as I said before, when Jerusalem was the capital of Judah and Samaria was the capital of Israel. It is also quite possible that Hosea completed his writings before 722 because that is the year of Samaria's fall to the Assyrians. When the, when the, when the, uh, when the Samaritans fell, which was, of course, those in the northern kingdom, when they fell uh, to Assyria, it's really not mentioned by Hosea at all, that particular event. Hence, Hosea ministered to Israel for approximately 50 years. He lived during what can be considered as outwardly prosperous times. Both nations, Judah and Israel, were outwardly prosperous. You know, when, when nations become prosperous, there are very few people within that nation that will really give God the credit. And unfortunately, that happened also in, in Israel and Judah. I want to say maybe not so much today, but yeah, I think that, that, still, that attitude still exists. This is what we've done. Some, some people will say, well, we have to thank God for that. It is still somewhat of a religious nation, but uh, when it comes down to it, they're, they're very proud people. And I, I say this with all due respect because we love Israel and, and we realize what God is doing on their behalf. And we realize that most of them, whether they acknowledge it or not, they, they have to come to grips with the fact that the scriptures themselves say that it is God who has brought prosperity to that nation today. In fact, one of the reasons why Russia and Iran are on the borders of Israel today in Syria is because they want to get as much of the spoils of Israel for themselves. And the spoils of Israel go way beyond just the natural gas that they have and whatever other gas reserves that they might have or oil reserves that they might have. There is the technology that Israel is known for being nearly at the very top uh, in, 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 the, in the world, uh, as far as uh, computer technology goes, uh, the very fact that we're sitting here today and, uh, uh, with, with cell phones in our pockets and, and uh, the technology of, of doing everything with that one little cell phone in our hands, uh, much of the credit goes to uh, Israelis who've given us... Uh, I was going to say a lot of problems with that because uh, uh, sometimes we are so transfixed on that little screen or so, uh, you know, dependent upon it for everything. But we don't, uh, we don't make a big deal about it. We just go on and keep on flashing and you know, taking pictures and selfies and whatnot, uh, which... <laughs> <laughs> scary sometimes. No selfies here. Well, maybe one. <laughs> so, outward prosperity. 
oftentimes brings about more of a prideful attitude than a humble attitude. Look at our own nation. Look at the United States of America. We are hearing all kinds of stuff politically, but we know what we see. And we've prospered for a long time because of, of, of God's grace, because of God's mercies. What we do with that depends and will depend very much on what the future God has in store for us. And we talked a little bit about that in our dealings with Syria last week and where the U.S. will be if indeed Syria falls and the Russians and the Iranians decide to go ahead and move forward with their attack on, on Israel, which is Ezekiel 38. And uh, yet we know what the outcome will be if we know the scriptures well. We know that God is going to be the one who fights for Israel. Uh, so this is going to bring about the moving into those seven years of tribulation and whatnot. So everything matters, folks. And that's why I'm bringing this up, is that everything matters about about uh, prosperity and outer prosperity. It could either be an outward prosperity or an utter prosperity, utterly uh, judgment prone. Because the scriptures are also very clear that nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Things can come, things can go. In a minute you can be rich, in another minute you can be poor. Stock markets and all kinds of other things. You know, we, we talk about stocks and bonds. Those are interesting words because back in the uh, 17th century, there were those who were also in stocks and bonds. You know, stocks and bonds, like, you know, being in, uh, <laughs> in a lot of trouble. Maybe that's what it... Uh, Maybe that's the ironic, uh, humorous sense of, of words nowadays. There was another factor going on at this time, too. If they were outwardly prosperous and saying, you know, look at what we've done, there was something else happening. Assyria, the nation of Assyria, its power was declining around that time. And by the way, this is before they attack the northern kingdom of Israel. Their power historically was declining. So the territories of both Judah and Israel have been expanded during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam II, having become wealthy through trade and commerce, both of them. Wealthy through trade and commerce. Interesting words because there's a lot of talk about trade and commerce today in our country as well as globally. But as Hosea would prophesy, their prosperity would be short-lived because the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, they've full-out rebelled and forsook the Lord. So he allowed them to be conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. by Sennacherib. And as for the recipients of the prophecy of Hosea, 
As we've already said, the messages were for both Israel and Judah, but they were directed mostly to Israel where Hosea lived. We should note that Hosea refers to Israel as Ephraim or Ephraim, which was the, tri which was the tribe of Jeroboam the king, Jeroboam II. And because of its prosperity and the dominance in the life of that nation, its name had become synonymous with Israel. Ephraim was also the region in which Samaria, Israel's capital, was located. So it's no big surprise that Hosea mentions Ephraim or Ephraim 37 times in this little book of Hosea. So for sure we know that the prophecy is for the northern kingdom, primarily. But now Hosea's words to Judah, the southern kingdom, were chiefly warnings of coming judgment if the people did not repent. To some extent, what, what, what Hosea's prophecies were to, this, to the southern kingdom of Judah was, take a look at what's happening north of you. Take a look at what God is going to allow to your brothers up in, in, in the northern kingdom of Israel, because if you continue on in the way that you're going, you're going to be exactly like they are, and, and, and Assyria is going to take them captive, and, he's, they're going to, and they're going to take you captive, or somebody's going to take you captive. Of course, we know who takes captive Judah later, and that's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, many years later. They hung on. In fact, what we know is that Assyria was on its way down into the southern kingdom of Judah, but they could not take Jerusalem. God would not let them. No matter how many sieges they put on Jerusalem, God spared them. Yet in the time of their being spared, as a nation, they did not turn to God. They went into that rebellion that eventually led them into their captivity to Babylon. So the children of Judah were not to behave as Israel behaved. And it's an interesting thing that, you know, we, we talk about we talk about our children sometimes and, and talk to them about saying, we don't want you to be like them. We don't want you to be like them. That's why, that's why I'm, I'm putting these restrictions on you. I'm, we're, you know, we're going to give you a little, whatever, a little pat on the, on the behind or whatever. We're, we're going to do that. You're just not going to behave like that. But what's, what, what's, the, what's the tendency of the heart of man, even as young as our children are? The tendency is, I want to do that. Don't touch the hot stove. Don't, don't walk on the grass, you know. Wet paint, don't sit here. Now you have stripes on your clothes. I mean, come on. The tendency of man is to do what it wants. The flesh to do what it wants. That's the proof that man, when man fell in sin in the garden... From then on, man was born to sin. Man was born into sin. Man was born to die in sin. Except for one thing, that God made a way for man not to die in sin. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, 
to take upon himself our sin, the sinless Lamb of God, to take our sin and put it on the cross. And how many pictures of of Yeshua, how many pictures of Jesus, how many pictures of, of the Messiah were given to Israel through the Passover, through the elements of the Passover, through the sacrifices, through every picture of the temple, through the pictures given on, on, onto, the, onto the high priest and the priests and what they wore and how they did what they did. Every picture, everything in the tabernacle, everything in the temple was pointing to Jesus Christ. Everything. But they did not see it. So it's important to note that the theme of Hosea's letter The theme of Hosea's letter was the unfaithfulness of the people of both nations toward the Lord. That they were guilty of forsaking the only true and living God and worshiping the false gods of the nations around them. But these were more than just messages of judgment. Hosea powerfully portrays God's faithful love for his people, his unyielding commitment to love them no matter the cost. The Lord had determined to be faithful to them despite his own personal heartache over their sin and rebellion. And so our theme for this series of studies will be the unfaithfulness of Israel and God's redeeming love. The unfaithfulness of Israel and God's redeeming love. That is the theme in its fullness of the book of Hosea. And the basis of Hosea's prophetic illustration, there's one illustration that starts off. We got a little taste of it, a little taste in verse 2 when we read there, in the, the, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredom. And children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. The basis of Hosea's prophetic illustration is the marriage relationship. Depicting God's relation to his people and to his children. Consider for a moment these passages. First of all, and and the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want you to see the language that is used by God. Exodus 34, verses 12 through 17. This is at the time when Moses has become disgusted with his people. God had written his law in stone and given those tablets to Moses. And Moses comes down to bring the law to the people and the people are worshiping a molten calf. And he just destroys those tablets. So God is writing a second set of tablets at this point here in Exodus 34. But notice what the Lord says. He says, take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves, for thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they go a whoring after their gods. Do you see the connection? Hosea, go get yourself a wife of whoredoms. Yet they were warned years, years, and years, years before. Don't go a whoring after their gods. He says, and they go a whoring after their gods and do sacrifice unto their gods. And one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. So that, that word's going to be stuck in our head, for maybe for a little while. Go a whoring. Whoredoms. In effect, God said, and we'll get to this next week or next time, but God said, Hosea, I want you to go marry a, a prostitute. And we'll talk about the implications of that because some people say, well, did he really say that? Or did he say, just go marry somebody who's going to become a prostitute? That's not what it says, but we'll talk about that then. I'm getting ahead of myself. I better move on here because we'll be here for too long. Leviticus 17, verse 7, notice what it said. And they shall no more offer their sacrifice unto devils after whom they have gone a whoring. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. What, what are we getting from these words? We're getting a picture of unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness faithfulness they are supposed to be married to their God he uses the picture of marriage too often those who are married to a spouse if they went off looking for someone else that was them going a whoring looking for someone else unfaithful to the one that God had given. This shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generations. Leviticus 20, verses 4 through 8. And if the people of the land do any ways, hide their eyes from the man whom, uh, when he giveth of his seed unto Molech, and kill him not, then I will set my face against that man and against his family, and will cut him off, and all that go a-whoring after him to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. And the soul that turneth after such as having familiar spirits and after wizards, wizards, that a whole generation of people running after wizards recently in past years. Harry Potter. To go a whoring after them. I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. Sanctify yourselves. Notice what this leads to. Well, we studied on Sunday about what Jesus was praying to his Father for his disciples. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am holy, uh, for I am the Lord your God. Remember that Peter also quotes from this in his letter, first letter. And you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. Uh, jump down to verse 21, 
They have moved me to jealousy with, with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation, all because of their unfaithfulness. But I want you to see a key verse in Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 8. That key verse is verse 5. We'll get there. Verse 4 now. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. Notice verse 5. For thy maker is thine husband. Thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face for thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, thy Maker, is thine husband. One great lesson to be learned by the character of this prophet, Hosea, and his book, is that sin not only breaks God's law, sin breaks God's heart. Sin not only breaks God's law, it breaks God's heart. And so, like all of God's word, Hosea is written to all people of every nation and generation, not just for Israel, not just for Judah, but it is given as an example and a warning to all peoples. For we're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11, he says, now these things, speaking of the things that took place in the Old Testament and Hebrew scriptures, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. That's twenty-three thousand in modern English. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And once again, Paul says, Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples. By the way, an example and an ensample are actually a little different, but we'll talk about that another time. Nonetheless, it's a sample. It's, it's, a, it's a, a die cast that looks just like what it says. Now all these things un happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. 
And then Romans 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, I bring these up because he's not just speaking to the Jews in Rome. He's speaking to the Gentiles. This is, this is a letter for all, Jew and Gentile. Now, let's get to the historical purpose of Hosea. And we're almost done for the, for the evening, at least in this introduction. Next week we'll, or next time, I want to say next week. Uh, but next time, there will be a study of all of chapter 1. But the historical purpose of Hosea. Hosea's purpose was to declare that God loved the people of Israel and longed for them to repent, to turn their hearts back to him. He had created them. He chose them. He loved them and provided for them. And so he desired their love in return. Secondly, to demonstrate by Gomer's example, and Gomer is the wife that Hosea will marry, to demonstrate by Gomer's example just how unfaithful Israel and Judah had been to the Lord. That's the second purpose, and that is the historical purpose of this book. Because what it shows is that they had betrayed God, they had been disloyal to him, and in effect, they had cheated on him, just like an unfaithful spouse. They had committed act after act after act of spiritual adultery by worshiping false gods, and in doing so, placed their hopes in lies. And isn't that what hope was placed upon in the garden? The lies of the enemy? And by the way, those lies didn't just end in the garden, deceiving only Eve and Adam. Every issue of everything that God himself had created and said from the very beginning was twisted by Satan in the serpent. Did God really say that? Accusing God of lying. What did, what did God do? He created the world in six 24-hour days. What's the lie today? That the world was created over a period of billions of years. That we today are, are just descendant of, of uh, lesser uh, creatures, as it were. Maybe it started with the amoeba that was flying through the air with the greatest of ease. The flying amoeba that loved the trapeze. And somehow that uh, became, uh, wow, where did that amoeba come from? That one cell creature that became a double feature in the life of Charles Darwin. And the lie continued. The lie continues today, where we have so many people don't even know what they are. Well, I think I know what I am. I think you all know what you are. You are men and women created in God's image, given specific 
instructions as to how we are to reproduce, how we are to do everything according to God's plan, because He created us. But did God really say that? He didn't really say that. Getting into the area of religion, what did, what did the enemy do? He confused. He said, well, he doesn't want you to be like him. So he said that if you eat of this particular fruit, you're going to die. But I'm here to tell you that if you eat the fruit, you're going to be like him. You're going to be like God. And don't you want to be like God? Satan did. He wanted to be like God. He didn't want to be a selfless person. He wanted the attention for himself. I want to sit on the most, uh, in the place of the Most High. I want it to be my kingdom. So what happened? We ate of the fruit. And exactly what God said happened. Man began to die. They died spiritually immediately. Their eyes were open and they looked and they were naked and then they ran off to cover themselves with leaves, fig leaves, itchy leaves. God said, who told you you were naked? And then the blame game began. That woman you gave me. The woman looked at the serpent and said, that serpent you made, put in the garden. On and on for how many centuries and generations. And here we are, still studying it. A little closer to the coming of the Lord. And if that's the case, then maybe we ought to study it a little bit deeper and get ready because he's coming. There's a spiritual purpose of Hosea. First, there is the great love of God for his people. God's love is clearly the heart of Hosea's message. God loves his people just as a husband loves his wife, and he, has, he was hurt just as a husband is, is when his wife is unfaithful, or vice versa. Like a faithful husband, the Lord had proven his love for Israel time and time again. But they had not fully grasped his great love, a jealous and all-consuming love. You know, when we use the word jealous for God, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. Because it is in the jealous love of God that we learn what love is supposed to be in the right way. If they had, surely they would have returned his love. If they had fully grasped his love. They would have returned his love. Surely they, they would have obeyed his word. Surely they would have been faithful to serve him. But they did not. And yet the Lord still loved them. And that's the thing about Israel today, is that God still loves his people, doesn't he? And he was fiercely determined to bless them and to bless the whole world through them. Because that's what he said he would do. He would bless the whole world through his people. So in closing, the words of the Apostle Paul describes then clearly the type of love 
with which the Lord loved his people. The same patient, unfailing love he gave Hosea for his wife, Gomer. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll close with this. This is God's love. This is unconditional love. This is agapao. This is agape. Charity, which is love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity, never faileth. But where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Where there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But charity never fails. Agape never fails. Unconditional love never fails. God's love never fails. Is it any wonder that we're still here? After all these years of battling the wickedness of the enemy, of battling sin and death, of battling the grave, how death weighs so heavy on all of our hearts and lives, and yet, there's a promise, a promise of hope, a promise of everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That message. would eventually be Hosea's message to Israel and to Judah. Return to the God that loved you, loves you, and will love you. Return to the God who created you. Return to the God who provides for you. Return to the God who will keep you in his everlasting arms.